Thank you for listening to this sermon from Renaissance Church located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please visit our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like to know more about how you can partner up to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. If you've been in church for a while, you're like, my identity's found in Jesus. And that's not really what I'm asking. We're going to get to that a little bit later today. But the, the natural reaction for people who are Christians are probably like, I don't have an identity in anything. It's only in Jesus. It's like, no, you, like you're a parent maybe or you're a student or uh, maybe you find your identity in something like you're uh, a teacher or your choice in music, like if you're grunge or hip-hop or emo or whatever that is. So what is it that you say, life has molded me to, to be this way. I want you guys to think, think, think about that for a second. Um, in high school for me, I really struggled with identity, right? I hated school. I was a little bit nerdy, but I was desperately, I desperately like really wanted to be cool. I was kind of a pothead, um, and, but I really wanted to like fit in somewhere. Um, and I, I listened to like rap rock, which is an identity crisis in of itself. It's like, you can't even choose what it really is. Uh, so all of this culminated to me looking like this. There's a picture here. <laughs> yeah, you guys, can, you guys can laugh. I get it. It's up there for a reason, right? This is a yearbook photo of mine, um, and it screams identity crisis, right? I was incredibly awkward because like, I lacked like, a solid identity. Um, and so I... I, I uh, we we got to calm down at some point. <laughs> um, anyway, I share that with you for this reason. Today we are talking about identity and what the Bible has to say about identity. And what we're going to see is that the gospel transcends all identity. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive his identity. And that comes before any way that we could possibly identify um, a second reason why I, I share that is this. We moved uh, recently, and, um, and when we moved, Innie came across my yearbook, and she took a picture of it in her phone, and she's been holding on to it to blackmail me for a little while. And so I have re- revealed myself, Innie, and you have no leverage over me now. I am one step ahead of you. <laughs> Anyways... Um, <laughs> Today, we're, uh, we're continuing in our series in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've titled this series, Called to Freedom. And uh, what we see throughout this book is the author, Paul, he emphasizes that we are no longer slaves to the law, but we are called to freedom through faith in Jesus. So we're not bound to, to attaining a certain standard in order for God to accept us, but because Jesus has attained that standard on our behalf. We are accepted through faith in him. So that's a little bit about what we're exploring in this series. Uh, As we look at our text for today, I want us to to explore two main sections today. Um, Two main sections that I want us to see are this. So first, I want us to look at the effects of the law, the effects of the law. And then I want us to look at the effects of the gospel, the effects of the gospel. 
Uh, we're going to kind of break our sermon into two, two kind of sections. Those are going to be the headings. And within those sections, we'll have a couple of points that we'll, we'll follow up with. Let's start by reading our, our text for today. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. Um, or if you don't, it'll be on the screen as well. So Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And we're going to begin in verse 19. This is what it says. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith, we, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray, and we'll begin unpacking our text for today. Um, God, we thank you for this day. Thank you again for another Sunday where we can be gathered here uh, as the church, as your body, uh, a group of believers who come together um, based on, on um, the fact that we are sinners and we are in need of a Savior. Um, God, would you uh, convict us of sin today, but also show us the need for you? Um, would we leave here having lives transformed by Jesus. God, we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our text uh, begins with this question. In verse 19, it says, why then the law? And I think this is a very important question to ask, right? Over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the fact that we are justified and sanctified uh, by faith and not by the law, right? In fact, last week, we, we talked about how the law is a curse and that we cannot live up to it as hard as we try. And, and if we try to justify ourselves by any part of the, the law, we will be held to the standard of fulfilling the whole law. And so, yeah, this, this might be rather confusing, right? Because uh, the law, it came from God, right? And so I think we were right to ask the question, why were we given the law? Right? If the law is only able to curse us, um, if the law is only able to curse us, then why would God have given it to us? Right? And so that is part of, of what Paul seeks to answer today from our text. So let's take a look here. Um, I want us to begin by looking at the effects of the law. So why would, would God give us the law if we could not fulfill it? Well, the first reason is because the law exposes our sin. Right? Paul writes this, he says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. So the law was given as a result of a sin, and it exposes our sin. Right? It exposes our inability to fulfill the law. It shows us our need for a Savior. 
So the idea here is, is to show you that you're not the Savior in your story because you face an impossible task. The, and that task is fulfillment of the law. Um, picture, picture a story with your favorite superhero, right? No, it doesn't matter who, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. It could be really anyone. It could be Juan. Um, imagine in this story, right, there's been uh, an accident, right? Imagine there's been an accident. There's, there's a school bus full of kids, um, and they're, they're driving on, the bus is driving on a bridge, and the bus swerved to avoid something on the road, and the driver, he's lost control of the bus, right? And the bus crashes over the guardrails, and it's teetering on the edge of this bridge. And every time uh, the kids try to move, on the bus, uh, the, 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 the bus gets a little bit more wobbly, kind of teeters a little bit more, and it's kind of uh, creeping more and more off the edge, and it's going to fall off this bridge. Now, if you're looking from the, uh, from, from the vantage of, of one of the kids on the bus, what must you do to be saved? Right? You need to get off the bus, and you need to get on safe ground. Right? The problem is that when you move, the bus moves, and you are going, the, the bus will fall off the bridge. And so you're faced with an impossible task. You're faced with something that you cannot do. So what the law says here, if, this, if this situ- the law was applied to this situation, the law would say, hey, get off the bus. In order to be saved, you need to get off the bus. You have to do something here that is literally impossible to do. But it also shows you uh, that you're, you are unable to do it on your own, right? We would never look at the author and say, well, why would you put the kids in this situation, right? Well, why would you put uh, the kids in that position? They'll never be able to do it, right? right? Why, would we, why wouldn't we ask that? Because we know in this story that there is a Savior. Someone is going to come to rescue them. And so in a similar way, the law asks of us something that we are unable to do. We are unable to fulfill it on our own no matter how we try. It exposes our inability. And so what we need is someone else to save us. Right? You cannot do it on your own. You need someone else to save you. I'm sure this analogy probably falls short somewhere, so don't take it too far. But the point is that, again, the law, it shows us that we are unable to save ourselves because of our sin. Because of our shortcomings and our failures. We need someone to come and save us. And it won't be by fulfilling the law on our own and and, and doing things by ourselves. You are not the hero of your own story. Jesus is. Tim Keller, uh, he writes this. He says, this is the purpose of the law. It shows us that we do not just fall short of God's will, requiring some extra effort to do better, but that we are completely under sin's power requiring a rescue. He goes on to say, he says, God never intended his law to impart life. Otherwise, we could become righteous through it. He says, the law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but it cannot give us the power to be righteous. In fact, as we see God's standards and try and fail to keep them, the law shows us that we do not have that power. Righteousness cannot come by the law. Ironically, if we think we can be righteous by the law, we have missed the main point of the law. So the first effect of the law is this. It exposes how sinful we are and shows that we are in need of a Savior. The second effect of the law 
is this. The law guardrails our sin. The law guardrails our sin. What's the idea here? The, the law, it keeps us somewhat in line, right? It prevents us from being as sinful as we could possibly ever be. Here's what we see in verse 24. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. I want us to look at that word guardian for a minute. Depending on, on who you read, different commentators um, or different translations, they, they translate that word differently, that word guardian. Um, so I've seen it translated as guardian, as tutor, strict schoolmaster, supervisor. But here's the idea. The law, it prevents you from basically just wiling out. Like it keeps you in line and makes sure your behavior is intact. And so I think that the, the, the use of the, the visual guardians is, or guardrails is, is an appropriate visual. If you want to think of like bumper bowling, right, in bowling, the bumpers prevent you from getting the ball in the gutter, right? They guide your natural propensity to go astray from the target. You're still not guaranteed a strike, but they prevent you from being as bad as you could be. So there is both a negative and positive effect to the law. Yes, it exposes our sin, but it also keeps us somewhat in line. So, again, the effects of the law are that it exposes our sin, but it also guardrails our sin. All right, so we see the effects of the law here in Galatians. Now I want us to look at the effects of the gospel. Uh, first thing I want us to see is that the gospel invites us into God's family. The gospel invites us into God's family. It says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. And there's, a, there's an author named Dehati Lewis, and he writes this. He says, The church is not like family. It is family. God is literally our father. Jesus is literally our elder brother. We are literally brothers and sisters in Christ. Family is the primary way the early church identified themselves. He says, This can be seen by the fact that the word disciple, so prevalent in the early part of the New Testament, it disappears after the book of Acts. It is replaced by the term brother in the rest of the Bible. He says family dominates the self-understanding of the early church. And what beautiful news this is for us, right? This is the gospel that sinners, those who have rebelled against God, are forgiven. And we are adopted into God's family. Jesus dies in the place of sinners, though the, the law, it shows us our sin and our failure. It points us to Christ who is without sin. And the, and the gospel, our good news, points us to the cross where our sins are paid by Jesus. Not only is our debt cleared, but we are also adopted into God's family. We're seen as Jesus, his very own son. In John chapter 1, um, the author writes this. He's talking about Jesus. He says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So when you put your faith in Jesus, God sees you now as his child. Now, this is one of the amazing things about the church. The church isn't some club of people who like a similar style of worship or they share the same theological beliefs. No, if you are a part of, of the church, you are a part of God's family. You're a son or daughter of God. 
And the church is a collection of unique individuals who have, adopted, who have been adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus. This is why um, we believe being a, a member of the local church is important because what you're saying is, hey, I'm a part of God's family here. Let's do this together. Let's, let's live life together as brothers and sisters. It's an acknowledgement of the family that you've been invited to, that you have spiritual brothers and sisters who also belong to God, who God, by his spirit, is working in and through. Here at Renaissance, uh, the only requirement for membership is faith in Jesus. So if you are a follower of Jesus, if you turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus, then I would encourage you, become a member of this church. Tell us, hey, I'm one of God's children through Jesus, and I want to do life together with his family. If you are a part of this church or you're just curious, we have a members gathering coming up on on this Friday, on September 30th at, at, at my place, and we would love for you to be there. Um, these are where true life happens. Um, Right? On, on a Sunday, yes, we worship together. We hear God's word preached. We get together uh, to, to talk for a little bit with each other after. All of this is very important, um, so I'm not diminishing Sunday in any way. But in our members' gatherings, we are family together. We pray together. Uh, we learn together. We discuss our lives together. We, we base our gatherings, a lot of the, of the idea of our member gatherings, from what is modeled in Acts chapter 2. And what we see there is the early church living life together, treating one another as, as family, like brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm going to read a little bit of what it says in Acts 2. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is what we desire to be like as a church family, growing together, eating together, sharing the gospel together, providing for each other's needs, because the gospel invites us into God's family. Finally, I want us to see that the gospel transcends identity differences. So the last uh, verses of this chapter focuses on our identity once we put our faith in Jesus. Paul teaches that once once we put our faith in, in Christ, all of our other identities become secondary to our identity in Christ. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I want to spend uh, our remaining time here focusing on the examples that he uses here because he's very purposeful in his wording here. So there's three ways that the gospel transcends our identity differences. Here, here they are. The, the gospel tra transcends our cultural differences, it transcends our gender differences, and it transcends our class differences. Um, and in all this, I want to be clear too, this is not about abolishing these structures 
right? It's not about abolishing class or culture or gender. Um, When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, male nor female, he's not advocating for getting rid of these distinctions, right? It's not not about getting rid of, of class and gender and culture. It's about having unity within them. And even more so, it is about finding a greater identity in Jesus. So first of all, uh, the gospel transcends cultural differences. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek. Last week, we talked a lot about this, about the cultural differences that were dividing the people. So there was a group, uh, if you remember, the group of people, they were religious uh, people, they were called the, the Judaizers, and they were claiming that it was fine to trust in Jesus, right? That's fine if you do that. But you also need to observe the Jewish customs, such as circumcision and the, the dietary uh, laws that the, Jew, uh, the Jewish people followed. And we focused on how dividing this was for Gentile believers who would have to give up their culture and adopt the Jewish one. This, however, is contrary to the gospel because Jesus does not love us because we eat a certain way or look a certain way or dress a certain way or listen to the right kind of music or dance a certain way or can't dance at all. That last one's for me. Um, the gospel is not a merit-based system. To add to the gospel divides the church. The gospel isn't for one group of people, nor does it exclude any group of people. The gospel is for all people, and all people who trust in Jesus will be saved. Most, if not every uh, place that I've ever visited, people find ways to distinguish themselves from others, right? In Quebec, you're francophone or you're anglophone. If you're from Newfoundland, you're either a bayman or a townie. Um, even in, in North Africa, where we've been for mission trips, nearly everyone there is Muslim. But if, if, there's a big difference between uh, those from the city and the Berber, the Berber people in the, the small villages. And there are many, many ways that we can identify, and culture can be one that people have the most pride in, right? But the gospel says you are not loved because of your culture. You are loved because you are made in the image of God. This is, what, uh, this is why Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek because the love of Christ transcends all of our cultural differences. The gospel also transcends gender differences. There is no, neither male nor female. Again, this is not about destroying these distinctions. It's, distinctions. it's about honoring one, one another in our differences. Um, a note about the culture of Paul's, Paul's day that is worth mentioning. So in Paul's day, women were treated as though they were much inferior to men. Um, Tim Keller notes that this was probably the biggest barrier in Paul's day. But the gospel doesn't say that you are accepted based on what gender you are. In fact, if we look at the life of Jesus, he was notorious for his restorative relationships with women. Jesus came to earth through a virgin girl named Mary who would have been viewed as promiscuous. Jesus accepted the woman who the religious leaders frowned upon when she, quote, wasted perfume on him and wiped his, his feet with her tears. Um, he met with a Samaritan woman at the well, which was radically countercultural in his time. And in a day when women were seen as disreputable as witnesses, Jesus appears to two women first after his resurrection. If we are our brothers and sisters in Christ, then let us treat each other as so. Men, love the women in this church as though they were your sister. Don't objectify them. Treat them as equals. Uh, empower them to use their gifts in the church. 
Do not let our, our, our gender differences come in the way of showing the love of Jesus to one another. The gospel transcends gender differences. Finally, Paul goes on to say, there is neither slave nor free. And this has to do with class distinctions. So the gospel also transcends our class differences. Um, as we talked about before, the gospel invites us into God's family. And so we need to see that God's family will be up, made up of people who have needs and some who have an abundance, right? Some who are well off and, and others who need provision. But acceptance into God's kingdom has nothing to do with financial or socioeconomic status, right? You're no more loved by God if you have little money than if you have a lot. Um, we, we do not subscribe to the prosperity gospel, which says if you have enough faith that God will make you rich, nor do we subscribe to the poverty gospel, which puts minimalistic living on a higher level of righteousness than being well off. Uh, on a practical level, as, as members of God's family, we do not ignore the needs within the church. The Bible is consistent in describing God's heart for those of lower socioeconomic status. So here are just a few verses. Deuteronomy 10, it says, uh, it's talking about God. It says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. He says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. James 1 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Psalm 68 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Proverbs 31 says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And we could be here, here all day going through even more verses. So let us not neglect those who are in need in this church. We show, that we believe, we show what we believe about God by how we treat others, particularly those in the church. And when we treat those in need with dignity, our actions show that we believe that they are image bearers of God and that they are loved. In all this, we show no partiality to those who are poor or rich, male or female, whatever their cultural background. The gospel transcends culture, gender, and class differences. Therefore, the gospel is fervently opposed to racism, sexism, and classism. To be a follower of Jesus is to see others the way Jesus sees them, made in the image of God above any other identity that they exhibit. And the only way that we can do this is by God's Spirit. Um, I like the way that, that Paul puts this at the end of the chapter. He says, put on Christ. He says in verse 27, for many, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The image is of putting on clothing, essentially saying, wear the title Christian by how you live, right? Identify with Jesus. Be his follower. Put that on, right? Embrace the ways of Jesus and have that stand out far more than your identity as a Quebecois man or a young professional businesswoman or a poor student or a feminist or a fashionista or an American. Put on Jesus. Wear him like clothes on top of your business suit, your pink hair, your football jersey, your yoga pants, or your secondhand clothes, whatever your identity is. 
Embrace that he loves you and let that empower you to love others who are not like you. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl.gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.